Today's episode of Wings for Breakfast is brought to you by Remarkably Remote, a new daily microcast from the experts at GoToMeeting, all about making work from home work for you. With indispensable intel on how to stay sane, motivated, and productive at home, we're here to help you in this brave new remote working world. Find us on smart speakers or subscribe to your favorite podcasting app. You can also listen at gotomeeting.com slash tips. That's gotomeeting.com slash tips. of Wings for Breakfast, our twice-weekly Red Wings podcast here on The Athletic. I'm Max Boltman. With me, as always, is Prashant Iyer. Prashant, how are you holding up? Not too bad. Uh, you know, still getting along with working from home over here, but can't complain. Good, good. Glad to hear it. Well, we've got a lot to get to today. We're going to do a little bit of a uh, little, little bit dip into history. We're going to talk about some of the great lines of the last decade or the, the early decade. Or no, the previous decade. One of the decades, uh, and we're also going to get into uh, some of the mid-round draft, not mid, second and third round draft possibilities for the Red Wings. They're they're loaded up on picks in that range uh, in the upcoming draft. We've devoted a lot of time thus far to uh, kind of the, the, the very top, the cream of the crop, the top five where the Red Wings are going to be picking. So today we're going to just get a little bit into some of the guys um, in that range where the Red Wings will ultimately have five picks between the second and third rounds as of right now. So we'll devote some attention there. Any of those, either of those topics sound... Uh, more interesting than the other to start with. Let's uh, why don't we start by tackling some of the mid-round players that the that might be available for the Red Wings, and then we'll kind of work away from there. Absolutely. All right. Cool. Well, one of the reasons that typically this waits till longer in the process uh, of of the kind of the draft preview is because it's just kind of hard to know, you know. It, Players separate themselves at the top, and so it's it's easier to talk about who the guys that are going to go, you know, one through, let's say, five, six, all the way down to ten, really, um, the, even this far out. You can kind of tell what the cream of the crop is, and with some of the guys in the second and third round range, it can just be tougher because you'll have guys who, who start maybe in that range and move up, way up in some cases, or you'll have guys who end up going there that you'd have never thought would have made it that far uh, even just a few months ago. So typically, I would even wait longer on this. I would wait until after the combine, uh, which you know isn't almost until June to, to really dig into this. But I think since basically we've seen everything we're going to see out of prospects, uh, it allows us to to do this a little sooner. So I'll let you start. Um, anybody who really jumps off, I I, I kind of go off of the Bob McKenzie list because that tends to be the one that you know involves a lot of scout opinions. Uh, so anyone who let's let's call it in the in the late twenties all the way down to really the sixties that interests you. Yeah, I mean the McKenzie list. I think you know importantly, like you said, is the one that tends to best align with you know players that. Uh, you know, it best aligns with maybe where players are going to go. And, and historically speaking, it's been shown to be the most accurate list when you judge it against the actual draft. And, and you know, to kind of highlight what you're saying, Max, the reason this this is so important for us to eventually do, and, and we're doing it because you're not really going to see anything else, is because the Wings have five picks between the second and third round, and assuming they keep all of them, uh, you're going to have a handful of guys here. And so, you know, I think we've talked about a couple of these guys already to a certain extent. I think, 
you know, Yan Misik is, is a guy that we've talked about already who's probably criminally underrated at this point in, in uh, McKenzie's rankings. He's 53rd there, but a lot of people have him, you know, likely in the mid-first round. So, you know, we'll see how he actually shakes up. So I wanted to touch on, I think, a couple of other guys uh, who are lower on McKenzie's rankings, but are potentially guys that are going to be really solid players. And, and the first one that I really want to highlight is Tyson Forster, who's in the OHL right now. You know, at the Bob's midseason rankings, and again, keep this in mind, this was, a uh, you know, the midseason for, for Bob and, and not really, uh, kind of, uh, where we're at at this point in time. But Forster is a guy who's flown a little bit under the radar in the OHL just because you've had so many dominant centers there. You've had obviously Marco Rossi, Quentin Byfield. But Forster is a guy who put up 80 points in 62 games played for the Barry Colts, um, Andreas Athanasi's former team. Decent sized player, six foot one, two hundred pounds. He plays the puck really, really well, and I think he's a guy that has kind of the traits to be a, a really solid player in both uh, the offensive zone, the defensive zone. He's a guy that if you're able to nab him, kind of in that forty to forty five range, I, he's one that I think could potentially outperform a lot of his projections. He's kind of in the middle of the pack when you consider birthdays. He has a January birthday. Um, so he's not, you know, overtly old and he's not also on the younger side, but he's kind of smack dab in the middle. He's a guy I would certainly look at if you're in that 40 to 45 range and he's sliding there because I really do think he's had a really strong season. He's a good scorer, good overall player, great size, and, and you're not necessarily worried about it being, uh, all related to him just being older than everybody else. Yeah, that's a great place to start. I mean, Mishak's definitely going to be on that in that group for me. Uh, I think you know Yarmer Pitlick from Sault Ste. Marie is another one who I'm kind of interested in. Um, you know, he's a bigger guy, but I think there's there's some uh, some nice elements to him. I don't think it's just about size. He's six two, so it's not like he's a gargantuan who would be you know dominating based on solely on uh, on physical advantages or anything like that. Um, let's see who else we got. There's, uh, you know, this is a guy who I think probably goes in the first, but I was digging into some Seth Jarvis tape, uh, this, this list week. And, uh, I texted you about him. He's a guy who has a lot of elements that it's really hard not to like. I, I bet he ends up going first, maybe even mid first. But when you start thinking about guys who you would realistically trade up for, if, if they do slip into the twenties, he's 24 on the Bob McKenzie list. The reason, only reason I'm even bringing him up here. If he's if it gets to twenty four, twenty five, and he hasn't gone, that's one of the guys I think it might be worth even moving up from thirty two to try to get. Yeah, I completely agree. And again, Jarvis is a guy who's been an unbelievable player uh, this season. And I just you know for whatever reason uh, the WHL guys are just not getting a lot of attention this year. Connor Zari, Seth Jarvis, um, you know Nolan Ritchie, guys over there, Pavel Novak's another one. Um, you know, the WHL got a lot of press last year when you had the trio of big centers who were uh, all available. No one's really talking about these guys. And, and wrongfully, Jarvis is a guy who's kind of slipped maybe from the national attention. But when you look at a lot of the guys who do this on a day-to-day basis and you look at some of their rankings, so Cam Rob- Robinson, a guy who writes for Elite Prospects, Dauber, Dauber Prospects, a number of other sites, a uh, really good scout in my opinion, He's got Seth Jarvis at 10 on his list that he released today. This is a guy that if he is slipping into that later part of the first round or, you know, heaven forbid, he's there at the first pick of the second where the Wings are going to have that pick, 
he is a guy you absolutely want to jump all over. Yes, he's a little bit undersized at at five foot ten, and he and he could certainly stand to put on a little bit of muscle. Only one hundred and seventy two pounds at this point, but he is an uh, he's an absolute force, and I think the Wings would be lucky to be able to pick him up uh, if he does slide into the early part of the second, or uh, utilizing a couple of those seconds to try and trade into the back part of the first if he's still there. Yep, yep. Uh, Daniel Gushin in, in the USHL, he's a guy who, uh, you know, that's got some really interesting elements to his game. He's on the smaller side, so the things you're, you're wondering about is, is the skill enough to overcome that? Is the skating enough to overcome that? But he's an interesting player for sure. Um, other than that, I mean, I'm sure, uh, Lars, one of our longtime listeners is going to want to make sure that we bring up, uh, Helga Granz out of Malmo, uh, 6'2 Swedish defenseman. Uh, so he's in the J20 league, but, uh, nonetheless, shout out to Lars, who's been, who's been spamming our mentions with, with, uh, Helga's name all, all season for a reason, I would imagine. Uh, Jean-Luc Foodie's a guy who, you know, he was a guy who coming into this year seemed like he had a chance to go pretty high. Uh, it doesn't look like that's necessarily going to be the case anymore, but, you know, at 37 on the McKenzie list, that's a guy who, you know, if you're picking at the top of the second round, you're probably taking an interest in. Yeah, I mean, I think Foodie's a, a real interesting one. I think, uh, again, statistically speaking, when you look at him, the one thing he does have going for him is he is a bit of a later birthday. His birthday's a May birthday. Right. Um, so, you know, when you're thinking about his stats, and again, when we're talking about these birthdays, they do make a big difference when you're talking about someone being potentially an entire year older or several months older, as we've been talking about with guys like Rossi and Lafreniere versus Quentin Byfield, who's a, a much younger player. That that later birthday does make a difference. These are guys who may be a little bit developmentally behind some of the other guys that they're going up against. But you know, Foodie's a guy who, if he is around again in the later part, kind of mid to late second round, which. Again, we don't really know where he's going to go. He kind of slipped a little bit from where a lot of people had him earlier in the season. Um, you know, Cam Robinson, who I just mentioned, has him at 52nd on his list. I think if he is in that mid to late second round, he's certainly a guy you want to take a flyer on. I do want to go back to some of the USHL guys you uh, you were just talking about. So again, you know, the USHL got a lot of press last year um, with both the, the USHL and the U.S. Development Program having an outstanding draft, having 50-plus players drafted from, you know, the United States. That was a huge year for them. This year, again, you know, it's been a very down year relative to last year. You don't have the same caliber of talent, but there are some big-time playmakers in there. And one of them you mentioned, Max, is, is Daniel Gushin, who I think has flown a little bit under the radar relative to other guys like Brendan Brisson, um, you know, in the USHO, who I think most people think will probably be one of the better players selected out of the USHL this year. Um, that being said, I think Gushin's right there with him. Again, Gushin gets overlooked a little bit because of his size. He's only five foot eight, 160 pounds. You know, similar to what we're talking about with Marco Rossi and that size factor, but he is a supremely talented winger. I think he's a guy that could, you know, do a lot of damage. And again, you know, a couple of other guys to be thinking about in the, uh, later part of that second round slash early part of the third is, you know, also Sam Colangelo, who's in the USHL and then Colby Ambrosio, uh, who's a center, um, bigger center, um, than Marco Rossi, relatively speaking, at five foot nine. But still, that being said, uh, I think a lot of these USHL guys are getting overlooked because they are on the smaller side. Um, you know, you're looking at Brett Berard is five foot nine. You're looking at Sean Farrell is five foot nine. Ambrosio is five foot nine. Gushin's five foot eight. These are guys you just don't want to sleep on because I do think they have a lot of talent to go in that later part of the second round. So let's talk about the height thing because I think there's there can be sometimes a uh, a 
it, it's an interesting like split on on how to treat that because on one side there's kind of the they certainly I think get overlooked and you can find a lot of examples of really skilled uh, smaller players who who seem to get overlooked or go later whether that's you know to the degree of an Alex DeBrinket or or less so. Um, what in your mind are the are the ways that a prospect can overcome? the the size issue because not all of them work out either right i think there there can be a tendency for kind of draft twitter so to speak to fall in love with a lot of uh five nine guys with really nice puck skills uh and then ultimately not all of those guys like any prospect sample are going to make them so any any threads that you think uh can make a prospect like that work yeah i think that's a great question and it's it's such a challenge because it's really there's two sides to the coin when you're evaluating a prospect based on height. When you're looking at the smaller prospect, the the excuse often is, well, you know, they're playing in a weaker league. That ice time that they have available to them is not going to be available. And do they have the requisite size to be able to get to the same scoring areas at the next level and the level above that and presumably if they got to the NHL? That's always the question with the smaller player. What we don't talk about enough is at the same time the bigger player where is the reason the bigger player is scoring because he's just bigger than everybody else. And this is a very common thing that that uh, happens because, you know, when people have gone back and looked at NHL prospects, you often see that the bigger players are more likely to make the transition to the NHL, but they're no more likely to be any, they're no more likely to be successful relative to their smaller counterparts who score at a similar rate. So what my personal opinion is, is, if you're looking at someone's height, let's say you've got two players, they both scored the same amount in the same league over the same, you know, number of games, but one is six foot five and the other is maybe five foot nine. To me, I would not treat those two players differently in terms of how I handle their development. But what I will tell you is the six foot five player is the one that's going to get talked about as a high first round pick. And the five foot nine player is often the guy that's talked about as a later round pick in terms of a, you know, maybe a later first round or early second round, even though they've scored at the same level, scored at the same league. And so that's where kind of that market inefficiency happens. And that's where I think if you're evaluating these players, I don't know that there's necessarily another quote unquote measurable attribute or a piece of objective data that'll help you separate the smaller players, which is what I think gets down to your your question, Max. I think if you've got, you know, two guys who are scoring at the same rate, um, both uh, maybe five foot nine, I don't know that there's another objective piece of data uh, by itself that's going to help inform you which one of those guys is going to be more successful. I think there are additional tools you could look at, things like Evan Oppenheimer's betweenness metric, which looks at how much a player, uh, you know, kind of contributes to the scoring of his teammates and, and, and vice versa. I think there are some more complex models you can build factoring in height, weight, age, league strength, and a couple of other things to try and get a better estimate of the player's true talent. But, you know, ultimately speaking, I just don't think that smaller players should be discounted relative to that bigger player because we, again, don't often talk about how the bigger player may just be more advantaged at this level and won't have that same advantage moving up. 
I think it's interesting because one of the questions I answered for a mailbag that came out on the Athletic uh, Wednesday was, "Who do I think is more likely to make the Red Wings next year, Tara Hirose or Evgeny Svechnikov?" And it's an interesting question for a number of reasons. I mean, Hirose had a clearly better season in the AHL this year statistically, uh, but I ended up saying Svechnikov because I think his game can translate in more ways uh, than Hirose's ultimately could. Now. Hiroshi, we have seen go on a, a heater in the NHL. And so it, you're, you're kind of, when, these are guys where I don't think either of them fits quite the extremes that we're talking about here. Hiroshi's a little taller than 5'9", Svechnikov's only like 6'2", I think. Um, but ultimately, they're, they're kind of, it's kind of a case in point of this, of, of why, um, I think height does matter, just not to the degree that ultimately, <laughs> It ends up seeming to uh, on, on draft night. Um, Svechnikov's a guy who I think he could play on the fourth line pretty comfortably. And I don't see Hiroshi thriving in fourth line roles for a number of reasons. Number one, because it's just like his style of game. If he doesn't have the puck, then his best traits, his sense and his puck skills uh, just become harder to tap into. Whereas for Svechnikov, you know, his shot is a strong tool, right? Uh, his physicality can be a strong tool. Those are things you don't need to have the puck to do. And so I think, I think broadly applied that can be useful, but you just shouldn't use it on guys who are your Cole Caulfields of the world who, where I'm ultimately going with this is, we talked about how there's no real data point that you can tap into to break these ties. That's because ultimately you got to look at the tools and what they can do. I mean, there's two questions you should probably ask yourself when you're watching a prospect. And number one, I've, I've read this before. I, I I'm, wouldn't be able to properly attribute it, so I'm sorry if I'm stealing it from someone, but I really liked it. Uh, it's, number one is why won't they make the NHL? And number two is why will they? And so if you're looking at one of these smaller players and you're saying, okay, really nice puck skills, that could be why they do make it because they can do some really nice things when they have it. Why won't they? Probably the skating sometimes will be the issue. Are they fast enough to uh, create separation when you know they're not going to be able to create separation physically? Why will they sometimes? If it's a bigger player, it's, well, because they're really good around the net or because they've got a great shot or because physically they're imposing. Why won't they? Often the answer is also skating or maybe it's, uh, maybe it's, it's puck skills and that once they have the puck, they're not going to be able to keep guys off of them, uh, in the same way that they can when they can just kind of stick out their arm, right? Like, like, like the classic playground bully. So ultimately the tiebreaker in those situations probably can't be boiled down to stats because you got to see the guys, you got to know their tools, you got to know their habits uh, in order to make those calls. But I, I think it's a really important conversation because I think mentally it is easy to filter guys out in either direction saying, well, okay, 6-4, but do the numbers really count? Or well, 5-8, but is he going to be able to do that against bigger players? Ultimately, you have to see the tools in order to know, uh, in order to know the full picture there. Yeah, I completely agree. And then, you know, the, the tricky part for the smaller players is sometimes even when you know the tools, these players still get filtered out. Like Alex DeBrincat was an absolute machine. Cole Caulfield was the arguably the best goal scorer in U.S. developmental program history. And you still have these guys fall and slip and not necessarily get to where they're going, despite the fact that they have elite tools. Like, I can foresee this happening on draft day. A guy that I have literally talked about the entire year is Marco Rossi. He's five foot eight, but if you look at Craig Button's list that he just put out, he's got Jack Quinn, Rossi's teammate, who and Jack Quinn and Rossi are actually just about the exact same age. Jack Quinn's only four days older than Rossi, but he's got Jack Quinn ahead of Marco Rossi. Marco Rossi has thirty one more points than Jack Quinn and and Rossi, per his own GM, was listed as their best offensive player, best defensive player, best face-off guy, best power play guy, 
best penalty killer, and best shootout shooter. And despite having all that information on his traits, you're still going to have people overlook some of these small guys and still place other people ahead of them. And so, you know, I think it, it's always a balance. And I think no matter what, even if there are people that filter out some of the bigger guys and, and have that conversation, it's always a, a much larger uphill battle for the smaller guys. Yep, I think that's fair, and obviously, I, you know, I think we're we're in agreement that Marco Rossi is one of the one of the top players in this class, and and should be treated as such. I have seen him at five foot nine, so that'll work in his favor. That's every every inch towards five eleven seems to count. <laughs> uh, but yeah, no, I get your point. I mean, the guy who I'm most curious to see what happens with uh, is is Zion Nyback. I mean, he's a guy who at at five six and a half is what the McKenzie list has him listed at. Uh, that's going to scare teams, and I having watched just a little bit of video. I think I probably would be among those scared um, just to see how it will translate. But at the same time, you know, there's tools there. There's production there. I think, uh, you know, so it, he's going to be an interesting case for me. And, and you know, at 5'6", maybe one of the smaller guys in this draft. Yeah, you know, and that's going to be the interesting thing because if there is no NHL combine and, and we don't actually get official height measurements on these right. guys, it's important to note that there's a lot of variation. Like, for example, Elite Prospects has... Zion Nybeck listed at five foot eight, which is the same right. height as, as Daniel Gushin. And so that's that's an inch and a half difference. And, and that's where it's important to say, all right, like this guy, I need to evaluate this guy based on the tools that he has and the stats that he put up and pay less attention to their height. Because truth be told, I think if you were to try and isolate this out of a model, the guys on the extremes, I would rather have the guy that's smaller scoring at the same rate than the guy that's much taller scoring at the same rate because I would have the concern that a lot of that scoring for the taller guy is simply due to the fact that he's got a massive size advantage at that level. Um, and so that that's just, again, it's a, it's a tricky piece. If we don't have the combine, we're not going to get accurate height measurements. And, and who knows what you're going to go off of here. Yeah, I think I could. I think you could make the same argument the other way. I'm not saying I am, but I think you could make the same argument that, you know, the bigger guy, even if he's scoring in part because of his height, at that height he's still got a good chance to be, you know, bigger than some NHL players. Whereas the smaller guy, the players that he's going against are only going to continue to get bigger as well and more physical. I think you could make the argument both ways. I'm not going to attempt to. I'm not. I'm not uh, sure where, where I would. Uh, I'm not sure I would make a categorical claim there. But, uh, you know, it, it's interesting. And I think size is going to continue to be a conversation in the NHL draft uh, for years to come. Yeah, completely agree. And you're not going to escape it this year because there's a lot of wingers, um, you know, who are on the smaller side, a lot of centers on the smaller side that you're going to have to have these nuanced conversations and, and, and figure out what's the right way to evaluate these players. Yep, absolutely. There's a pretty good chance that uh, – Nobody we said ends up ends up hitting, so we'll see why. I was surprised you didn't bring up uh, your boy Roni Hirvinen. Well, you know, so I I feel like I was trying to get names that I haven't said as much as yeah, okay. in That's other cool. episodes, but you know, obviously Roni Hirvinen is is an outstanding player. Again, earlier in the year, a lot of people had him. You know, even in the in the twenties, um, you know, potentially going over there. I think he slipped maybe a little bit. Um, Cam Robinson had him at 32. Either way, I think, if, again, if he's a guy that's in the middle uh, of the second round or even the early part of the second round and he's available, you want to be looking at him and you want to be taking him. I think another guy to look at, just to round out all of my thoughts, um, you know, Luke Evangelista, I think, is, again, a smaller winger, 5'11", 165 pounds in the OHL. I think he's another guy that uh, hasn't gotten a lot of 
press or buzz around him, but I think he's a guy that could score quite well at the next level. So, you know, there's, there's a handful of players that I think that are, are going to be real gems available in the second and third rounds for the Red Wings. I think with them having five picks, they really have a lot of options available to them. They should look and have all the, the options available on the table, um, you know, in terms of if they're going to use those picks to move up, make all the picks like they did you know, in 2017 and, and ultimately say, hey, this is the way to, to do it and add as, add as many players as they can to the system. One thing that I, a guy like Hirvin and I think will have uh, an edge on, on some of these other guys we've talked about with is the fact that he played in Liga this year. We'll have teams, you know, I'm not saying that it validates it more necessarily, uh, but it will at least give teams an idea of what he's going to look like against men, right? And he produced, I think, respectably, 16 points in 52 games, uh, played, you know, half the year at age 17, half the year at age 18. Uh, not eye-popping, really, by any means, but but he's been you you see what he looks like against men i think that's going to help a guy like him make his case to teams of just in terms of projectability what it's going to look like against men yeah i completely agree and then the other kind of piece that i found just from my own work when you look at players drafted in rounds one through three and you look at the leagues that they're drafted out of players drafted from you know the top swedish league being the shl and the top finnish league being liga those players make the nhl much faster and much more regularly than players drafted from, you know, the North American Junior Leagues. And so those are players that if you're able to nab them uh, in the early rounds, being rounds one through three, these are players that have demonstrated they are good enough to play in men's leagues that are roughly half as good as the NHL um, and roughly twice as good as some of the Canadian major junior leagues. And so that's where I think those are those are players that if you – or uh, get able to draft them in the second and third rounds because they haven't gotten a ton of buzz. These are guys that are going to likely be successful uh, at the NHL level. Yep, yep. All right, and then you know I'm not letting you get out of here without asking you about a goalie. So Nico Dawes is the goalie kind of right on the border there at number 60 on the McKenzie list. Would you take him, if you are the Red Wings, with either the Capitals pick, which will be toward the end of the second, or uh, the, the Red Wings pick at the top of the third, or the Sharks pick, which should also be in the, in the first seven or eight picks in the third? Max, you know my answer. I'm not drafting a goalie at any point in time. Uh, you know, I, I gave my answer already uh, several, I think a couple months back when we talked about this. I, I'm personally of the mindset that we just don't know enough about how goalies develop. We don't know enough about how their skill sets translate uh, from one level to the next and ultimately how they translate to the NHL level. And and so with that being said, I have a very hard time saying I would want to use a top 100 draft pick on a goaltender that I'm just not certain how it's going to play out. And again, given that the wings are starting to turn the corner a little bit with Keith Petruzzelli and, and still, you know, you can't write off Philip Larson at this point because of his tough year. But, you know, with those two guys in the system, I don't know that it is prudent for the Red Wings to spend a high round pick on a goaltender. I think if they're going to do it, do it in the sixth or seventh round. Uh, you know, don't worry about doing it in the first couple of rounds here because it just doesn't make a lot of sense. You know, if the NHL ends up handing out compensatory picks and, and things get shaken up that way, that may make things a little bit more challenging. We will see, but the Wings have their sixth and their seventh round picks this year. Use one of those on a goalie if you want to do it. All right. Uh, actually, I lied. That I wasn't going to finish there. There was a point that I was going to make earlier that uh, we just we ended up going elsewhere, but I do want to make it. So we talked about a couple important topics there: early birth dates and undersized guys 
I would say the perfect example of this is Nick Robertson is both. He was a September 11, 2001 birthday. Uh, so like four days before the cutoff for when, uh, you would have had to be in, uh, you know, in, until he could have been in this year's draft. And he goes last year, he goes 53rd overall to the Leafs. And by now, I think pretty much everyone has him, has him as a contensus top 20 to top 25, uh, prospect in the NHL. Put it, would have gone way higher in last year's draft. Combines both of those two traits. He's not the rule. He's kind of the exception, but he's an example of two factors that it, it makes it, that make it easy to overlook a guy based on production, uh, being a, a, a birthday really close to the deadline, uh, making you on the young side and, and some height things that, uh, that if you're willing to take a gamble, sometimes it can pay off in this way where Robertson came back and scored more than a goal a game in the OHL. Yeah, completely agree. I think, you know, Nick Robinson's, uh, an excellent example there. Um, you know, there's a handful of guys that could potentially fall in that bucket. Um, not necessarily as late of a birthday as, as, um, as Robertson, but obviously Daniel Gushin is a guy that we've talked about. He's again on the smaller side, potentially 5859, uh, February birthday. So again, on the later side, he scored really well in the USHL. I think he's a guy that you have to look at and, and seriously think about taking, you know, in, in, in a, uh, second round. Um, and then again, Zion Nybeck's the other guy that we talked about. He's a May birthday as well. So, you know, a couple of guys who could fit that bill of being the next Nick Robertson. All right. Uh, all right. We're going to transition next into some conversations about the best Red Wings lines of, uh, of the last decade. Uh, not the last decade. Last decade? 2000? Last decade. To 20? Yep. 2010 to 2020. All right. Messed that up in the interest sufficiently. So at least we have an adult in the room to set me straight. Uh, lead us into this, if you will. Yeah. So, you know, with the, again, with hockey not being around right now, Max and I have tried to come up with a lot of different conversations that would be interesting to have. Um, you know, so on our last episode, we spent a lot of time talking about arguably the most impactful Red Wings game of the last 30 years with, uh, fight night at the Joe this year or this episode. Uh, let's, we're, we thought we would talk about what we think the best line combinations the Red Wings have deployed. You know, what are the best lines that they've put out, um, over the last decade? Now, obviously that last decade encompasses the tail end of the playoff streak with, you know, the Datsuk Zetterberg lines, and it encompasses kind of the early part of this new phase with the Larkin Mantha Bertuzzi line. And, you know, a lot of the conversation this year was how good Bertuzzi Larkin Mantha were as a line combination and if that should be broken up and kind of where they stacked up in Red Wings history. So this was just a really interesting uh, topic for us to tackle. I kind of threw it out on Twitter just to see what people were kind of going for and, and who they were leaning towards. And most kind of gravitated towards Datsuk Zetterberg guy, um, guy being literally any player that you could put next to Datsuk and Zetterberg. That would be your best line combination. But I kind of wanted to, to get your thoughts, Max, and first – and maybe we can kind of do this in two parts. Uh, part one being, what was the actual best line deployed? And then if we could take any players from this decade uh, and put them together on a line, what would be the best line we could form from players that played for the Wings this decade? 
Yeah, absolutely, and good place to start. I mean, you look at it, and I think we probably need to set a cutoff at minutes played somewhere when we're measuring with with some of the possession stats. Uh, but the line that comes in really high in expected goals percentage is probably unsurprisingly to many, Datsuk Zetterberg Holmstrom. Uh, that's a line that, that controlled the, the quality, uh, of, of chances very well. 61% of the expected goals while they were on the ice. Uh, they also managed to, to control play at a similar rate, right around 60%. So that to me stands out among the, the lines that we're looking at here, uh, just right off the first look as being the top one. Yeah, I mean, that's the line that's really the gold standard for the Red Wings. They played the second most minutes of any Red Wings line combination over the last decade. They played 670, uh, 667 minutes together at five on five over the past decade. And, and that's been the gold standard for the Wings. If, you know, for Wings fans who watched them in the early part of the decade, I mean, that was just an unstoppable line combination. Even though Thomas Holmstrom wasn't the greatest of skaters and he's best known for his ability to deflect pucks and take goaltender interference penalties, he was truly an exceptional uh, thinker of the game. And, and he really knew where to be positionally. He knew how to drive the net. He knew how to take traffic away from Datsuk and Zetterberg. And so that line combination was just uh, absolutely unbelievable. I mean, like you mentioned, Max, at 61.5% on expected goals for, um, you know, 60% at Corsi, and then it all lines up with their goals percentages. They were at 59.3 in terms of 5-on-5 goals for percentage. So just one of the most dominant lines the Wings have been able to trot out. But another popular answer was actually a different winger uh, for Datsuk and Zetterberg, and it's uh, Johan Franzen. So looking at the Datsuk, Franzen, Zetterberg line. And so Franzen obviously was one of the most talented wingers the Wings have had in the, in, you know, the last 15 years. Unfortunately, career cut short due to, uh, concussion issues. But when he was on the ice and when he was rolling, he was a, he was basically Anthony Mantha for Datsuk and Zetterberg. He had an unbelievable shot, was an absolute workhorse with the puck, was so difficult to, kind of knock off the puck. And when he was on, he was absolutely unstoppable. And a lot of people remember his 2008 playoff run where the guy was just, he single-handedly beat the Colorado Avalanche, set the Red Wings record for most goals in a playoff series. He scored nine goals against the Avalanche in only four games played, uh, breaking the record set by Gordie Howe done in a seven-game series. So that was kind of the level that Johan Franzen was on, and he would have won the Conn Smythe that year had he not missed a lot of the conference finals uh, with, uh, again, another injury issue against Dallas. So, you know, he was a truly dominant player. That line of Datsuk, Franzen, and Zetterberg actually played 127 minutes together at 5-on-5, five their expected goals for percentage was at 62.5, so one of the highest that the Wings had over the time period. Their Corsi 4 percentage was comes in just under 65%, again, one of the best that the Wings had. Um, unfortunately, though, they didn't necessarily get the goals to go their way, and they were only able to score three goals at 5-on-5 five five, um, in those 127 minutes. So they didn't necessarily get the results the way you would want them to go, but I bet over a larger sample, that would be a far more dominant line. I imagine this is all regular season too, right? These numbers. This is all, out. yeah, this is all regular season. And again, this line, uh, was briefly deployed in, in the playoffs as well and had some success. But these numbers we're talking about are only regular season numbers. 
Which is all the more staggering because I remember Franzen as just the the man in the playoffs. I think he he was pretty close to a point a game in the playoffs over his career, but he had that burst in like from like oh seven to ten where it was well over. Yeah, I mean a lot of people remember Franzen's playoff run. So obviously the oh eight playoff run is the one that gets talked about the most. I mean he scores the pivotal goal in the first round against Nashville in Game Five, scores the game winner in overtime to give the Wings the three two series lead. That lets them beat Nashville in six games. Then, obviously, the next round scores nine goals against Colorado, opens up game one against the Stars with another goal before he ultimately leaves with an injury. I mean, he was just truly dominant. And then there's the series a couple years later uh, against the San Jose Sharks when the Wings are down three games to zero, uh, and they're playing game four at the Joe. And Franzen, uh, in about 15 minutes of ice time, Scores four goals, two assists, finishes with six points in that game. Again, single-handedly destroyed the Sharks. The guy had, I mean, he was involved in everything for the Red Wings that night. He truly was one of the most remarkable players to watch when he was firing. Obviously, he, prior to uh, Anthony Mantha scoring four goals, he was the last player to score four goals for the Red Wings. Last player to score five goals for the Red Wings uh, when he scored five against Ottawa a few years back. So, he, he was just an, a remarkable, remarkable player. Here's the line that I stunned me with, with what the measurable said they did. And I don't know where you're putting the cutoff for what's, what's reasonable, but I think they have like 340 some minutes of ice time, which is Yurko, Shea, and Tatar. They were really strong, both in terms of possession and in terms of quality and expected goals. That is, was not something I was necessarily expecting to be a dominant possession line. Yeah, and that, when I was putting this together and pulling this data, and I should shout out that, uh, this data was taken from moneypuck.com and, and I was able to kind of use some, utilize some code who, uh, Megan Hall, if you follow her on Twitter, was able to help me find the bug that I, uh, had and was able to help me fix it, uh, to get you all of these stats. But, uh, that line combination, I remember distinctly when they first came up, initially, uh, when Riley Shahan, Thomas Tatar, and Gus Nyquist all came up, and again, these guys came up together basically from Grand Rapids. They were a part of the Grand Rapids Calder Cup championship team. Then all these guys come up to the NHL level, and initially it's Nyquist, Shahan, Tatar that start together. That line was very dominant in its own right, but eventually, you know, Nyquist gets promoted to playing with, uh, Zetterberg, and so then it shifts to, uh, Yurko, Thomas Yurko, Shahan, and Tatar. And that line was, again, very, very dominant from a puck possession standpoint. You know, having an expected goals for percentage just under 59%, a Corsi for percentage just under 61%. And they scored 17 goals at 5-on-5 and were on the ice for only 6 against. Like, this was truly a very dominant line combination uh, to to watch. And and I think it was both this line and then, like I mentioned, the Nyquist-Tatar-Shahan line. Both of these were very good third lines for the Red Wings when they still had uh, the last little bit of Henrik Zetterberg and the last little bit of uh, Pavel Datsuk. Um, that's, this line was kind of that relief line for them. It's funny. I, one of the things that, that was making me laugh going through this was there's so much Bertuzzi. And I was like, how is Tyler Bertuzzi playing with all these people? Oh, that's Todd. So there's two on here. Uh, the, 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 I assume this is Todd Bertuzzi, Pavel Datsuk, and Johan Franzen. Uh, that's a really strong one. But then also the other Bertuzzi, the current one, uh, Tyler Bertuzzi, Dylan Larkin, Anthony Manta, they, they turn in a pretty strong showing in, among this group. 
Yeah, I mean, they definitely belong on the list of best Red Wings lines of the last decade when you look at them. I mean, they're they're just under 54% at expected goals for. And remember, they're doing that on the team that, you know, this Red Wings team, not some of the Red Wings teams that had Nick Lidstrom and, and Brian Rafalski and, and uh, in-prime Nicholas Cronwall on the back end and, and a much better structure overall. This was on this Red Wings team turning in an expected goals for percentage just under 54%. And, and they, even when you focus on the results, they outscored their opposition 31 to 24, uh, when they were on the ice together. And they averaged a robust 3.7 goals for per 60 minutes. Um, when you're looking at that from five on five. And again, that's one of the best marks, uh, of any Red Wings line combination. And it's the second, uh, sorry, third best mark of any Red Wings line combination that played at least 500 minutes together, and they're actually right behind the Bertuzzi, Datsuk, Franzen line. And and that line was so much fun to watch because you had Todd Bertuzzi, Johan Franzen, two very big wingers but immensely skilled wingers playing next to Pavel Datsuk. That line had the puck constantly. They were a force to watch. They outscored their opposition 32 to 12 at five on five in the 520 minutes they played together, which is the best mark, um, you know, of any Red Wings line combination when you're looking strictly at, at goal differential at five on five. So they were a supremely talented line. And then I actually, the only other line that actually creeps above those, um, is the Philpola Hoodler and then uh, Henrik Zetterberg line combination that played 620 minutes together. They didn't look as impressive from an expected goals for and a Corsi four percentage, but uh, when you're looking at their goals scored, they actually averaged 4.25 goals for per 60 minutes at five on five. So just a very dominant scoring line. Yeah, yeah. Well, so one of our listeners, Cody Stark, sent us uh, the also sent us the lines from the 2000 to 2010 playoff teams. Uh, he, he watched a bunch of games, rewatched them, put them together, and, and, and looked at who played for them in the playoffs. I thought that was interesting. So I'm going to put uh, – I want to do a little bracketing here, and I'm not going to, like, compose a whole bracket, but I want you to, to take any line of your choosing off of this list from, from this most recent decade, and I'll match it up with one from the 2000 to 2010 era, and we'll see uh, how they'd come out. Fair? Yeah, yeah, I think that's completely fair. And I mean, if I'm picking a line off of this list, with as much as we said, um, you know, I, I still have to go back to one of the first lines we talked about, which is Zetterberg, Datsuk, and Johan Franz. And I think when that line was all together, and again, they didn't get a long run together, only 127 minutes, uh, that was just exactly what you want out of a line combination. And I'm obviously going to go to a team that won the cup for my, now I, I'll grant, you know, this is 2001, 2002. These are not, these guys are, are up there in years by this point, but, uh, Iserman, Fedorov, Shanahan, uh, I think it doesn't get a whole lot better than that in terms of NHL history. Yeah. I think if you're going back to the 2001, 2002 Red Wings, uh, and you look at their line combinations, it really wasn't fair because Iserman, Shanahan, Fedorov was that top line and you go, okay, well, you're clearly loading up on your top line and, and you don't have a lot elsewhere where, well, generally their second line was, uh, Igor Larionov at center. So another Hall of Famer, Luke Robitaille on left wing. So another Hall of Famer and then Thomas Holmstrom, who we've talked about at length. But then you drop down to the third line and it's Pavel Datsuk as a rookie. And then you've got Boyd Devereaux, who was the other guy that kind of made that engine go. And then you had Brett Hall on that line. And so you've just got a smattering of Hall of Famers 
all throughout that lineup. I mean, you could really pick any one of those top three lines on that team and and put them again, put them up against any line in Red Wings history, and still find them to be comparable. I also find it amazing the longevity. You know, Chris Draper, obviously one of the one of the legendary Red Wings. So he's on, he's on this list of, of lines that Cody sent us. Uh, he's on there with um, Kirk Malpe and Darren McCarty. You know, obviously an iconic line. He also makes our current list of this most recent decade on one of the stronger possession lines with Patrick Eves and Darren Helm. That line played 371 minutes together. I don't know what year necessarily that's from, but 52% expected goals, 57% Corsi. Those are really strong numbers. Yeah, I believe that was actually the 2010-2011 season or 2011-2012. I'm not certain off the top of my head, but it was a year... uh yeah, I believe it was 2010, 2011, and that line was actually really, really good for the Red Wings and was instrumental in, in a lot of their uh, abilities to kind of forecheck when Datsuk and Zetterberg and those guys really needed a break. I mean, that was a really solid line, and I think that was the thing about Chris Draper's skill set is uh, he was so, so good at what he did, and he, no matter how he aged or as the years racked up, he never lost that speed. And he was just so fast, so tenacious, such a great forechecker that you could move him up and down the lineup and he was going to play the same way. Um, I mean, he even scored a, a vital goal in, in 2008 against the Dallas Stars to get a, uh, a big time win against them in, uh, I believe it was game six of that series where the puck actually goes in off of his face and into the net. Uh, I mean, the guy was just always consistent and he, he kind of transcended uh, the decades and was able to always be an effective player simply because his speed never went away. Underrated how many spots Gustav Nyquist shows up on the, on the top of this list. That's pretty impressive. Yeah, it's a little bit of like what you and I talked about, I think, on a prior episode where just Nyquist and Tatar, really, because Tatar's another name that shows up a lot. Yeah. Those guys don't really get the same uh, kind of credit or merit in Detroit. And again, they weren't there as long as you know, some of the other guys were talking about, but these guys were and they supremely didn't talented. Right, and they didn't win, but they were supremely talented players in their own right. They just couldn't fill the shoes that were Datsuk and Zetterberg. Right. Absolutely. All right, you want to pick one more line, and I'll pick one back, and I can't use any of those same three players? Yeah, I mean, if I can't take anybody, so if I'm removing kind of Datsuk, Zetterberg, and, uh, you know, Johan Franzen from my options... Uh, you know, at that point, you're, you can either drop down and you can look at the line combinations, uh, that had Philpola. And so I think one really fun line combination that didn't necessarily, uh, wasn't as successful, but I think would be very, very strong, uh, was Todd Bertuzzi, uh, Valtteri Philpola and Yuri Hoodler. They got 300 minutes together. Advanced metrics don't look that great. Only 48% expected goals for, 49% Corsi for, um, and 46% goal, five on five goals for percentage. But that was a line that had a lot of skill, a lot of the pieces. A lot of people, again, forget similar to Thomas Tarn Gus Nyquist. Yuri Hudler was also a very supremely talented player after he left Detroit, went to Calgary, actually put up 76 points in a single season over there. Very, very good player. I think the three of them would, were a great line. They just didn't necessarily get, uh, the same results you would have hoped for. Now, I don't know what the rules are. Am I allowed to take a player who was on your first line? or? Well, or, yeah, because you're, you're not in my decade. Ways? Yeah, you're not in my decade, so you All can right. take another line. So I think my instinct is to go Datsuk, Hull, Robitaille. 
but I, I kind of want to get away from those really strong teams right around 0203. So I'm going to go to the 0809 season, like a, a line that I just watched play uh, in the Stanley Cup final when we did that rewatch. Philpola Hosa Franzen. That is an outstanding, dynamic offensive line. Yeah, I mean, I was actually just watching some 0809 clips this morning because uh, I forgot how good Marion Hosa was. And uh, yeah. one of my favorite lines is, is uh, you know, Mike Babcock really moved a lot of these guys up and down the lineup. That that season actually started with it being Datsuk, Hosa, and Holmstrom. And there's a phenomenal goal. Uh, it was against Chicago that scored kind of early in the season where it's literally tic-tac-toe in the offensive zone where it goes, you know, Datsuk to Holmstrom to Datsuk to Hosa, back to Datsuk for a goal. Just an unbelievable amount of skill between those three players. I mean, that's the other line. But Marion Hosa was just an outstanding player. And, you know, I think in an upcoming episode, you and I will kind of tackle what would have happened or what would be different if in that 9 offseason after the Wings lose to the Penguins in Game 7, what if Marion Hosa re-signed with Detroit as opposed to, uh, you know, leaving for Chicago and the Chicago goes on and wins three cups in the next decade. But he was just a supremely talented player. Yeah, absolutely. Anything else on this before we head to the listener questions? No, this is a lot of fun. Um, you know, and I will, uh, if anyone's interested, I will post, uh, the data with all the line combinations on Twitter so you guys can feel free to, to look and see what, uh, I found and, and maybe come up with your own lines. Want to take one quick break to tell you guys about a couple of local businesses that are important to me. Obviously, with everything going on right now, we know local businesses and local restaurants in particular are hurting. I want to give you guys one in Grand Rapids that I love. That's where I'm from. That's Cousins Tasty Chicken. Uh, it's on Fuller, right at the at the corner of Leonard. Uh, small place, but it's in the Family Fair Strip Mall. I love the spicy chicken tenders and the the corn. That's kind of my combo, four spicy tenders and corn, but you can get anything. They have great food, great chicken, uh, and they've always been really kind of me. I've been going there since I was in high school. It would mean a lot to me if if you guys once a you know once in a while would, would, would order takeout from them so that they can stay alive. And the next time I can get back to Grand Rapids, they're still there because uh, I love going there just about every time I'm I, I'm home and I can. And then the other one is in Ferndale, right near me. Uh, it's, a, it's a sports bar, but they've got unbelievable food. It's Jay's Penalty Box, right on Woodward before Nine Mile. I personally love the pizzas. I get pepperoni and green olive, but awesome wings too. And they're willing to, to mix some sauces for you. Um, great people there. I've always really enjoyed going. There. So if you're looking for takeout options, those are two that I would highly recommend. But wherever it is, make sure you're supporting local businesses and local restaurants right now. It's really important that we we band together, and that is easily the most delicious and one of the easiest ways that we can do it. Thanks so much. All right, so the listener questions today are kind of funny because I think when we told people we were going to be focusing on draft prospects, I think they thought that meant we wanted them to also send questions about second and third round draft prospects. So we'll try to not repeat too much in this section. Uh, a couple of different questions, both from the RAF father and, uh, let's see, Joe D113, uh, they want to know about the possibility of a German five or more likely a German trio uh, with J.J. Paterka and Lucas Reichel. I wouldn't hate it. I mean, if if you were able or to Tim land, Stutzel, of course, yeah, if you're able to land Stutzel, Paterka, Reichel, and again, that's not impossible for the Red Wings to do if both Paterka and Reichel slip into the second round, and and you take Stutzel with the the first pick that the Wings have, it wouldn't be the worst thing in the world to take those three. And and you know, we all saw at the World Junior Championships how talented each of them were. I think. Uh, you know, it's been a little tough to really get a read on how good all of these guys are just because, uh, 
you know, we don't watch a lot of the DEO um, over here. You know, Paterka was on McKenzie's list at 20. I think Reichel was also on the list at 29. So I don't know that it's going to be possible. But if I look at Cam Robinson's list, or at least where he had him, he had Reichel at, at 51 um, and Paterka at 36. So, hey, potentially the Wings have picks in both those areas to make that happen but that would be would be a lot of fun and i would certainly enjoy how this one would contrast with the original russian five yeah i i don't think uh i don't think you're gonna be able to get all three of those but i think it could be possible to get stutzla and uh and certainly one of the two if, if they fall but i think you know one of the things about it it's not just like you, you want to get guys of one one country or something like that what i think what i like about the idea of it is these are guys who along with mort cider you saw go to the world juniors play with some adversity against some long odds against teams that had way more talent than them and get their team, although they still ended up in the relegation round, uh, I think it was kind of fluky. Like, I think that was a situation where something happened, some team lost when they shouldn't have, and it kind of catapulted the Czechs into the playoff round. If I, I think the right. Czechs beat my... Russia, right? So that was That's the problem. Right. Yeah, exactly. Right. And so... The, uh, you know, that German team to me looked like they were going to, to cruise into the, the quarterfinals, which would have been ultimately uh, a win for them. And, and, and really it wasn't the fault of any of the guys we're talking about. I think when these guys were on the ice, that German team was really impressive. And I think it does tell you something about their ability to play, uh, especially coming into a franchise that, that has lost a bunch, uh, and really try to elevate the status of it. I think that takes some mental fortitude. Yeah. Yeah. Completely agree. And so again, you know, if you're able to get one, two, or all three of these guys, I think it makes a lot of sense for the Wings based on the picks they have. Yeah. All right. Uh, one of the questions is just about Hendricks Lapierre. Uh, and he's an interesting one because I think uh, he's a guy who, who entering the season, this is from Brendan Giffel, entering the season seemed like he was going to be among the top ten. I think he said concussion issues. Is that is that the injury? Yeah, that's, that's my understanding. Right. So you wonder now where will he go? I mean, Bob McKenzie, I believe, has him at 16 on this list, which could very easily make uh, make him well beyond the, the point of, uh, of of him being relevant to the Red Wings. But when you have a guy with concussion issues, there's always the risk that a team's not going to want to use his first round pick, even in the teens. You know, you, you might find a team that says, "Well, we can't really afford to have a pick that may never make uh, the NHL," and so. If Hendricks Lapierre falls, whether it's into the 20s, into a, yeah, it's concussions, uh, whether it's into the 20s or whether it's uh, it right up to pick 32, where the Red Wings will have the first pick of the second day, presumably, uh, is this a situation where would you take Hendricks Lapierre there or is the risk too much? Yeah, I mean, that that's the tricky part is just, I think it's too risky for the Wings to burn uh, some picks, particularly on concussion histories, just because we know that even after recovering after from after the concussion, it, there's no guarantee that this player is not coming back. And and I think with Detroit right now, you have to hit on all of your picks. And you only got 19 games out of Hendricks Lapierre this season. Yes, he's a very talented player. Um, you know, he he very clearly belongs uh, in the mention of players that belong in that elite tier but I just don't know that it's a smart move for the wings to to make that bet and utilize one of their uh second round picks now if he's somewhere down in the third round I think potentially you you have to bite the bullet because at some point he's fallen too far uh but I just don't know that I could jump on it in the first two rounds I think I'm doing it at 32 for the reason that the Red Wings beyond you know I agree they need to hit on these picks but 
beyond just that, they need elite talent. And if you end up, I mean, you're taking a big risk. There's, there's, when you have three concussions in a season or in, in a year, in a calendar year, it's, it's scary. But if he manages to be healthy, then you have the potential of having that basically act like two top 10 picks in one year, which is the kind of break you really need. And so for me, the 32nd pick is a really good asset. It is a scary one to risk. I think I would take the risk uh, out of the upside, uh, just in the interest of the upside, knowing that I have two more second round picks if I'm the GM. But, uh, it, you know, certainly I'm not going to question that it's a big risk to take and one that could potentially look, uh, look problematic down the line. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's basically a boomer or bust pick, right? You're picking a guy that's got incredible potential. He's just got this one big caveat that could prevent him from really hitting that potential. And so you just have to ask yourself, at what point in time am I willing to play that game? For me, I'm not willing to play that at 32, but, you know, hey, maybe I'll play that at the top, you know, the top part of the third round, knowing that I have another pick in the third round. Uh, but I just, I just can't do it. I think the Wings have to go four for four. Um, or at the very least, three for four um, on their first four picks in the in the first two rounds. All right, I can buy that. I'm still doing it at 32. I'm I'm, I'm taking the risk. Um, let's see, Jake. I mean, this this might be might be this the answer to this next question. Jake Nagy, highest ceiling prospect that could realistically be taken at 32 overall. Well, I mean, obviously, Hendrick Lapierre, if he stays healthy, he's going to be you know a guy that uh, that belongs in that conversation. Uh, you know, a couple other guys that I think. Again, could be taken at 32nd overall. I really think Lucas Reichel, you know, we've talked about him a lot. Uh, some people have him sl- sitting right around that 32 mark. He is also scoring just a notch behind Tim Stutzel. He's doing it in maybe a little bit more of a disadvantaged role than Stutzel. He's certainly a guy that, that could just explode. He's got the pedigree. He's dead Robert Reichel. I mean, uh, you know, he's a guy that I, I really do think has a very, very uh, high ceiling and high potential depending on the team that takes him and kind of where he, he shakes out. I think he's certainly a guy that could do that. And then the other guy is um, Vasilya Ponomarayov, um, who's also in the queue. I think he's a guy that has first-round potential but uh, is likely going to be sitting there available at 32. I can't believe the answer I'm about to give because this is one of your guys. Uh, but, you know, I, when I see a guy like Noel Gundler, who's rated, I think he's got 27 on the Bob McKenzie list, uh, you know, has, has produced a little bit in the, in the SHL. He's a little bit old for the class. Uh, I thought you were going to give this name, but I'll say Noel Gundler could be a candidate for this. He, he better not be there at 32. Let's just put it that way. Like him and, <laughs> him and Yen Misek better not be there at 32. Uh, I mean, I just, I can't even wrap my head around the fact that those guys, could be there at 32. So that's part of the reason why I wouldn't give that answer. That's fair. I just can't imagine that they're, they're there at 32. But yeah, if those two guys are sitting there at 32, yeah, you're jumping all over. You're actually wondering how you can get the 33rd pick as well to make sure you get the other one. That's very fair. <laughs> you could probably trade up to get another pick in the 30s. I don't know about 32 and 33, but yeah. Oh yeah, I'm sure the wings could. And again, if you're in that situation, it's, if you're in an Arthur Kaliev situation, um, which again, right. I don't know who that player is going to be, but if you were talking about a guy who's got top 10, top 15 potential sitting there at 32, 33, you have to get on top of that. Yeah. Uh, Nick Brandon asks, doesn't pertain to undrafted prospects, but wondering why Tumiso didn't play in the NCAA this year. Did he just not commit in time? I believe the answer is just that school is a year longer in Europe. Yeah. I believe that's, yeah, I believe that's all it is. Like he just couldn't, uh, get into the NCAA yeah. this year. Yep. 
Um, all right, and then we'll we'll wrap with this one. Dave McCallum, in your opinion, what are the keys to fighting a defenseman beyond round one that can develop into the top four? Detroit has, he says, Detroit has struggled developing D-men, and he's concerned the crop isn't going to produce regulars beyond Cider. Well, first of all, they've done it with Hironic. He was drafted in the second round, uh, and they've in guys like Tuomisto and McIsaac, those are two candidates who could potentially do that. I think they're probably more safer projections on, on the bottom pair right now, but you never know. But let's take that question for what it is. What does it take to find uh, – what what would the, the protocols you would use to try to find the, the uh, defenseman who could play in the top four in round two? Honestly, the biggest protocol is just scoring. I think that's the number one thing you have to look at when you're starting to evaluate defensemen uh, beyond the guys that there's a lot of highlight tape on. And that's because I think, number one, even at the NHL level – we don't do a good job of evaluating the defensive side of the game. We don't do a good job of evaluating how well a player uh, defends. And that's that's for a lot of reasons. I mean, number one, we see a guy make 25 good plays defensively and go, yeah, that's a guy that I want on my team, without realizing that the reason he had to make 25 good plays is because he's making plays that result in the puck being in his own zone. And that's that's a very common pitfall, I think, with scouting to a certain extent. So to me, look to the scorers. Look to the guys that are putting up big points. Look to the guys that are finding ways to contribute to their team offensively because if they're doing it via the power play, then clearly it's telling you that their team values them, uh, values their offensive ability enough to put them on the power play, especially in the modern era of four forwards and one defenseman on the power play, you're not going to have a lot of defensemen on the power play. So if you're getting one or two defensemen there, I think that's a good place to start. And then the second piece is just don't be afraid of the height aspect. I think that's why you're seeing teams uh, like Colorado getting Sam Girard. Uh, now, granted, Girard was drafted by Nashville, I believe, and then traded over to Colorado. Um, but like Sam Girard's a classic example of this. Great scoring defenseman, fell into the second round, and that's simply because he was small, even though he had the point totals there, and we don't do a good job of evaluating defense. So look at the guys who are putting up big point totals. Don't get enamored with the big mobile defenseman type thing uh, for players that you don't have a lot of tape on in the first round. Uh-oh, I'm going to contradict you. <laughs> um, I'm going to go with two guys who went beyond the second round, who I don't think either of them had crazy production, and that would be Jacob Slavin and Brett Pesci, uh, two guys that went in the third and fourth, respectively. And the lesson I'm going to kind of take away is just to scout the tools. Like, know what you're getting beyond um, beyond just measurables. I mean, so uh, obviously I agree with Pichon that scoring matters quite a bit, and it can be a guidepost for you. But you look at a guy like Brett Pesci, did not score much in his draft year. He had six points. Why? He was at the University of New Hampshire. He was really young. He was a freshman before he was drafted. There's a guy like that in this draft, Jan Kuznetsov. I'm not saying Jan Kuznetsov is the next Brett Pesci, but I'm just saying you got to scout the tools to know uh, what what you can do. So uh, that would be kind of my advice. They both happen to be bigger guys who can move well. I don't think that that's necessarily the one true criteria. Oftentimes, big guys who can move well automatically get a lot of attention, and so you're scouting them, and if they fall, maybe that's for a reason. Uh, but I, I just say scout the tools and see what you think you can develop beyond just what they already have. What can you develop? Can If they've got good sense, good mobility, can you develop a, a better shot for them? Can you help them work on their puck skills? Um, to me, those things seem like, like if you can develop them, uh, maybe you can find your diamond in the rough that way. Yeah, I think that's fair. And again, it just comes down to if you're talking about guys that you've got a lot of tape on, then yeah, absolutely. You should take that, put that together with you know how well they've scored. And if you don't have a lot of tape, then really the best place to start is who are the guys that are scoring for their teams. And obviously you want to make sure you adjust for 
age. You want to adjust for their uh, the league that they're playing in because obviously point totals in the QMJHL are vastly different from those in the NCAA. And so you just want to make sure you know what you're doing and you're you're taking a, a good account of that. Teams should have a whole lot of time to watch uh, watch video, uh, the, the video that they have at least on players right now. But I'm very interested to see what happens without kind of these, these extra viewings, without the world U18s. I'm personally fascinated in how it's going to affect the draft. Yeah, I mean, to be quite honest, uh, you know, teams have everything that they're going to get at this point in time. And it'll be really interesting to see how well NHL GMs do at identifying the good players. Yep, there we go. All right, that is going to do it for us this week. Keep letting us know things you want us to talk about on the show. Today's episode was largely inspired by uh, Cody Stark sending us some some stuff about lines, and, and we went from there. So email us, uh, Twitter DM us, mention us, whatever, however it works best for you. My email is mboltman, M-B-U-L-T-M-A-N at theathletic.com. Uh, and you can always find me on Twitter at, at M underscore Boltman. Let us know some ideas. Uh, we would really appreciate it. Thanks. We'll talk to you Monday.